you know, our podcast hasn't been around a long time, but there are several episodes that I look back on and I personally enjoy and go listen to on a regular basis because there are certain guests that I frankly learn a lot from. I follow their content. I uh, pick up things here and there. And today's guest is a returning guest that I'm really excited to be having on because I learn a lot from her content. And there's a lot of things that I think we think a lot alike on. Now, I know in saying that, that could sound a bit narcissistic that I only want people on my podcast that agree with me. And that's not necessarily the case, but I do like having conversations with people that I believe are intelligent and people who might bring up a different topic uh, that I've never thought about before or bring up a topic in a different way. And so we are really fortunate to be diving in to the big question today of what does it mean to be a high value man? Welcome to The Evolved Man, where we are at war with the mediocrity of modern man. The Evolved Man is for men like you who are willing to be strong, open, and aggressive learners, men who are not afraid to disrupt and change. It's time we ditch the current conventional idea that we devolve with age, that the dad bod is our destiny, and that the glory days are behind us. Your best isn't behind you, and I'm here to provide you with practical tools, a few tips and tricks, and everyday wisdom to help you evolve into your highest form. Strong, lean, smart, educated, and emotionally intelligent. Now, let's go to war. Yeah, with that, folks, we want to welcome you to another episode of The Evolved Man, where we are at war with the mediocrity of modern man. Today's guest is a returning guest. You may have heard her episode 106 with us. Dr. Taylor Burroughs, thank you so much for coming back on. Yes, it's my pleasure, Steve. What a powerful intro. I love that. <laughs> thank you. We are uh, really excited to have you back on. I think that there's so much about the message that you put out there that really resonates with what we're trying to accomplish at the Evolved Man of helping people to evolve into the best version of themselves. Now, you have a, developed a concept that you that much of your uh, coaching, much of your content is based around called vetting. So if people haven't listened to our first episode, can you give a, a flyby version of what is vetting? Sure. Um, vetting is really the selection process um, in picking someone that you're going to be investing in. And that doesn't, it's not limited to romantic relationships. We could be talking about platonic relationships, professional relationships, all different types of things, but it always starts with vetting yourself first. And I think some people forget that because if you're the vetting tool, if you're not objective and if you're not calibrated, then your, your sort of radar is going to be off for your, and your filter is going to be off. So you'll pick the wrong people for you. So they've got to be aligned with your values and they've got to share the same things in common that are important to you and not just based on feelings like lust or love. So it's bringing some objectivity into the process of relationships. You made a post recently uh, that I can't quote it word for word, but it was essentially something along the lines of just because you have some sort of feeling 
some lust, some love, some excitement over another person. Don't try to make that thing work if it's not the right thing for you. Talk more exactly. about that. Yeah. And, and my vetting system is doesn't exclude feelings. Let's let's clarify that. So the little um, short version is logic plus desire plus love equals an ideal relationship. So desire or lust and passion and all of that chemistry stuff is important. And so is love, of course, but you have to consider the compatibility component, which is the logic component. And so most people forget that and they just kind of follow their feelings, fall in love and uh, usually have the harder route of trying to make it work later on once they've made a commitment to someone. And oftentimes that doesn't work out so well. So vetting is really about preventing unhealthy or incompatible relationships from running havoc in your life and potential divorces and all that sort of stuff. So as a retired marriage therapist, I really switched from treating marital problems to preventing them by focusing on my vetting system. I think it's a beautiful way to look at it. They, you're getting out of the, let's fix the problem after it's broken and let's start to address it before it actually comes about. Why do you say that people need to vet themselves first? Gosh, it, it like I said, it's just sometimes we have blind spots, we have trauma, we have wounds, we have insecure attachment, and it really clouds our judgment. And so if we continue to make choices based on what we think we want, oftentimes it can lead us astray. So knowing what we need and having that self-awareness is one of the key components of relationship readiness. So that's one of the first things that I go over with my clients is I really dive deep into what I call relationship readiness and self-awareness. Um, is a big part of it. I mean, that includes a lot, but knowing what your deal breakers are, what your needs are, what your boundaries are, uh, that takes time, that takes experience. And uh, some people rush into things before they even know <laughs> what they need in order to be healthy. And then they, they're surprised that, you know, the other person in the relationship uh, does not help them get to a place where they're content. So knowing what you need for that is, is really key. How often are people shocked or surprised when you talk about things like deal breakers? Um, I think there's a lot of people that are probably uh, have too many deal breakers. And oh, interesting. I would say that there, there are a lot of people these days. I don't know if it's more men or women, but they have unrealistic standards and high standards are a good thing, right. but you don't want unrealistic standards based on entitlement which is what I call like a high maintenance person, right? A high maintenance person is entitled. They expect all this stuff from somebody else, but they do not actually bring that themselves. They do not live by those standards. So really clarifying, and it can be eye-opening when you confront someone with what are your core values? And they list, you know, maybe 10 things that are valuable to them, but they don't actually do that. They don't live by that. They're not aligned with those values themselves. And so recognizing that incongruence can be difficult, but I think it's, it's really, you know, it's helpful in order to move forward with looking for a compatible person. So there's a concept that I was talking to a friend about recently called Extegrity, this idea that, you know, integrity means that everything internally is uh, integrated, right? Extegrity mm -hmm. is that, um, essentially that 
my values then line up with what I do. It lines up with how I communicate to the world that everything around me is well thought out and is integrated. It sounds like you're talking about not just my core values are this because this is what I think I should believe, but this is what I live. Yes. You have a client that has a gap there. Where do you start? Well, what do they do? You know, like what does their regular day look like? How are they uh, actually acting when they have time to themselves? You know, because they'll go through the motions of work or the things that they have to do. But when they have the freedom to opt for what they want to do, what do they fill their time with? So looking at some of those basic daily activities and habits, those systems that we put into place, sometimes subconsciously, we need to examine those and, and give them some airtime so that we can look at, well, you know, is this what, does this help you feel uh, like a, a better version of you? Is this what you want to do um, with the time that you have? Or is it sometimes it could be they have obligations to people that they don't really feel fulfilled by? And so it could be decluttering their life with things that are not really aligned with, you know, their values or their priorities, or it makes them feel, um, whether depressed or frustrated, just negative emotions that they're not processing and dealing with. So then learning to communicate better and have more assertiveness with their boundaries. I was just talking to a client earlier about communicating to family members who are taking advantage of you. Obviously, you're, you oh, know, interesting. Yeah, you're not going to dismiss your family members. You still want to be there for them. But if you don't clarify how you feel about their behavior and they're taking advantage of you, then you can't expect them to change. And obviously you don't, you're not going to be the one who makes them change, but you have to change your behavior towards them. Like your responses, responsiveness to their behavior needs to change. So you can't just keep, you know, overextending yourself to people who are taking advantage of you. That's you violating your own boundaries. How does someone determine what their boundaries need to be? I consider what can you tolerate, you know, like what, okay. what is your sort of threshold of tolerance there? Because that will indicate what your deal breakers are. And we are responsible for regulating our own emotions, right? So we want to be able to stretch a little bit with our tolerance. We don't want to be completely intolerant all the time, just when we're inconvenienced. But as long as you are reasonable about it and you're able to process, you know, disappointments or frustrations or criticism, whatever those negative feelings may be that come up, then you need to decide like what, what pushes you over the limit, you know, that button that you have yeah. that you just, you need somebody else's cooperation in order to not cross that line, that you're doing your part. And so when those deal breakers or those deal breakers will clarify when you realize, okay, this is just, that's that limit that I have to set. And I need to communicate that to somebody else to, you know, just help me um, recognize that, that that's, it's valid. That, that level of tolerance is valid. I'm allowed to have those specific personal preferences. I, for years, have taught in uh, leadership, cons, uh, leadership uh, scenarios. I was actually just teaching this recently to a group where we, I, I have them make a list. We call it the, the three buckets or you know the three tiers or the three levels. But essentially, bucket number one, tier number one, is what are the things that I love about 
you and this relationship that we have, right? So if this is a, a coworker, if this is somebody that reports to them, a spouse, whatever, what are the things I love? What are the things that I tolerate, right? Yeah. And then in that tolerate bucket, we also put little stars or little asterisks by things that might become deal breakers if they're done too often or the intensity, the dials are turned up too much. And then what are the deal breakers? What are the things that sit into that third bucket or are, or on that third sheet that uh, create this? Uh, yeah, we're probably not going to move forward with this. Uh, we're going to have to look at a different solution. Now, you can't fire family. Uh, you can probably, you know, you can get divorced, I guess, but you can't really fire your kids. Uh, I've tried. Uh, when my kids did something, I just tried to fire them and they, they kept coming back home. I'm like, what are you doing? I already fired you. Talk about how do you establish these boundaries, whether it's with kids, whether it's in other uh, intimate relationships, or whether it's extended family. What are the keys that people need to keep in mind? Well, I do think that having a secure attachment, like a healthy foundation is obviously it's going to be the cornerstone of this. And so it depends on at what stage we're talking about. Like if we're trying to build a secure uh, attachment from the very beginning, right? Like then we're going to be effectively communicating, actively listening, expressing empathy, and having a more collaborative, respectful framework from the beginning. But it's hard when it's like after the fact and you're trying to change the dynamic in a family uh, yeah. after so many years. But those are really some of the key components, I would say, is learning how to a regulate your emotions is really important mm -hmm. because having hard conversations when you're triggered is just not going to be effective. Right, so right. I would say this is one of the most important things in any kind of self-help uh, medium that you're doing. And I wish that we focused on this decades ago. Um, it's only now like kind of a trendy topic, but emotional self-regulation was really called coping skills before <laughs> in yeah. therapy. Avenue. It always seemed like such a strange name for me. Yeah. I How mean, do you cope with this. Well, that sounds. I, I do think the regulation uh, right. framework is better because it gives you more agency and, and right. it, it talks about the nervous system and how we go into fight, flight, freeze, and fawn mode mm -hmm. when we are triggered, which I also think is kind of like a loaded term. I, I like to also use just destabilized when you feel destabilized or overwhelmed. Oh, interesting. Okay. Yeah. So learning how to keep yourself composed under stress, it doesn't mean you're invalidating the negative emotions that you're feeling, but you're controlling your reactivity so that you can actually be effective to communicate or to respond with your behavior. And that's, a, if we're talking about masculinity, that's a huge part of being a strong masculine man uh, of high value, right? Like you need to be able to to exhibit these behaviors. So I do think it's going to be a theme that we, we might bring up later today too. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, that would be, if we're, if we're addressing this in some kind of family setting, teaching each other and it's not just self-regulation, but it's co-regulation, right? So we can help regulate each other's emotions in those difficult conversations. Yeah. I like that. Uh, perspective. Let, let's go back and just lay a couple of foundational pieces for our listeners. Uh, you, you talked about insecure attachment versus secure attachment. How would you define those two terms? Uh, and maybe give us an example of both. Sure. Well, attachment in general, like when you have healthy, secure attachment, you have usually come from a functional, healthy family that was able to demonstrate how to give and receive love uh, in a way that 
was reciprocal, it was respectful. And um, yeah, I mean, I think that a lot of people take it for granted when they do come from a healthy family that that was just, you know, their privilege to be raised like that. But a lot of people are not raised in that way uh, where, you know, they learned how to give and receive love. Um, some people are put in a situation when they're a child where they have to earn love and they mm. seek approval. And so that creates some insecure attachment, whether anxious or avoidant. A lot of people who have anxious attachment have more of a like a clingy, needy vibe. They kind of chase love. They try to perform in order to, to earn love and, and seek approval and impress people. They may be people pleasers. So that is quite common, but also the avoidant uh, attachment, which is another form of insecure attachment. Those people seem very disconnected. They're maybe yeah. hyper Dependent. And so they, you know, when they were young, they may have been neglected. Maybe their parents were harsh with them and they didn't meet their needs. Like they didn't respond appropriately, appropriately to them when they needed some comfort from their parents. And so they, their internalized coping skill was to do it on their own and they couldn't trust people to meet their needs. So when they grow up, they have the same sort of frame of reference that they don't need people. They can't rely on people. They're afraid of being abandoned, but the, their way of coping is different. They sort of withdraw and stiff arm people versus the anxious attachment um, manifests more as, you know, that desperation for love. Like you have to chase it down and, and do more to earn it. The insecure attachment, as you're talking about, relative to the clingy type, do they tend to blame other people more for their emotions uh, on in the negative sense or project their emotions out? What, what's your observation there? Well, they certainly don't have a lot of emotional self-regulation. Okay. So when they're feeling that anxiety, when they're feeling that panic, especially in the early vetting or dating stages, right? Like these types of people will text you constantly or, you know, they get mm. very nervous that... They catastrophize something horrible has happened. Like uh, they jump to conclusions and assume the worst in any situation. Gotcha. So that kind of behavior makes them feel like they're out of control. They cannot regulate that when they're in a position where they don't know what to think, they can't stay calm and be patient very well. Right. Like it's, it's very hard for them to do that. And I work with my clients a lot on just shifting their focus and you can call it distracting themselves or whatever, but I just really encourage some of my clients when they're in that moment, they're, they're texting me because I do like real-time support and I'll say, go for a walk, like go for a hike, you know, go to the gym, just do something that will help you process your emotions and let time pass. And if you don't do that, then you just get stuck in your head and you start ruminating about all these possibilities and so that's number one, is that they can't control their emotions themselves or their behavior as a residual outcome of their emotions. And, and so they do, in a sense, kind of defer like responsibility to their, of their emotions to the other person. They made she them. She didn't correct. text me back. And that's yeah. why I feel this way. Exactly. Or she didn't text me back immediately. And that's yeah. why I feel this way. Okay. Yeah. 
Now, what you're referencing with your advice or your uh, guidance to the to the uh, people that you work with, you're telling them not don't don't just distract yourself, but but change your perspective, go do something else. It it seems like that is something that, at least from my perspective, I've seen with many high value men, people who have a high value not only to themselves but to society at large. They are not sitting around worrying about other people. What they they don't have this anxiousness, right? They if something's not flowing, then they move to something else. They will go for a walk. They will go for a hike. They will just go to the gym. They will stick to the routine, whatever it is that they're doing. Um, am I off in that perspective? Oh, I, I agree with you. I think that's very true. One of the terms that I use might not be a perfect fit, but I also think it's outcome independence, which is interesting mm. though, because okay. it's kind of a feminine thing to just kind of be in the moment, you know, like you're sure. not really outcome focused because being goal directed is a masculine trait. But one of the things that we we mentioned before in the last episode, and you talked about it a second ago was integration. And so when we talk about, or when I talk about masculinity, I'm talking about healthy, integrated, secure masculinity. Yeah. And so it, if you were hundred percent masculine, you would be irate a lot, right? You'd be flying off the handle at any kind of hair trigger. And that's not a high value man. So a high value man has good frame. He has composure. He has that emotional self-regulation or stoicism. So that's, what's important is that he's not phased by those things. So if someone is, you know, delaying responding to him, it's no sweat off his back. He's a busy guy. <laughs> he's got other things to do, right? He's not going to be sitting around waiting for you, but he will call you out tactfully um, on that behavior. And for example, with one of my clients, there was a woman uh, that didn't respond and she was going to follow up with a date or something. Like if she could make it, didn't follow up the next day. And so when he responded, he said, you know, like, I, I was looking forward to hearing back from you about tomorrow. Are you able to go to dinner? You know, so you're able to observe their behavior. And she responded with an apology, like, oh, I'm so sorry for the delay. And if she wouldn't apologize, then that would be a red flag. People mm. aren't perfect. They'll make yeah. mistakes. Right. But if you don't take notice of their you know, inappropriate or um, inconvenient behavior, their disrespectful behavior, then you're not being assertive about your boundaries either. So you have to kind of consider all of that being composed and not being upset by it. But it doesn't mean that like you're not going to call out bad behavior when it happens, if that makes sense. Yeah, I, I love that. I, uh, I had, a, had a situation one time, and I, I tell me if this resonates, mm -hmm. where I had a gentleman come up to me. I had finished a speech, and he walked up to me, and he goes, I'm quoting you from now on. And I said, <laughs> okay, well, what are you quoting? He goes, call shit shit. Like, oh, well, okay, that was a long conversation that we had with an entire group. Tell me why that uh, resonated with you. He goes, you know, I have lived most of my life not thinking that I could call things out in a very positive and productive way and not positive like, hey, this really bad thing is good, but just you know, if there's shit there, it's shit. Like mm -hmm. the dog shit on your lawn, it's shit. It doesn't smell good. You don't want it there, but it's there. So it's, you just call it what it is, clean it up and then move on. 
And he, he came back to me later. He said, that was actually one of the most impactful things that I have used as a mantra in my life. And when uh, he was a coach and he, when he was working with clients and clients would complain about the exercise program that he had them on or the nutrition, he would say, well, you know, I, I mean, I guess you, you could keep complaining about how hard it is, or you could reframe and uh, just lean into it because either way, it's going to be difficult, but it's how you look at it. That's going to really change your life. And he said, once I started talking like that in this almost monotone voice, people were like, oh yeah, it is going to be hard. Okay, that's fine. I'll just reframe. And he says, people just move on. They just go forward. <laughs> they change it. And his, so his ability to call people out in a very pragmatic, very practical way, non-judgmental, just calling out the behavior, calling out the perspective, shifted everything in his life and then the lives of his clients. You mentioned frame in our last episode. And so for anybody that hasn't uh, listened to that, can you give an idea of what frame is? Sure. So <laughs> there are a few elements to it, but basically what I boil it down to is just having that ability to lead yourself well in any situation. And so you don't get, um, really, you don't get thrown into somebody else's frame. Like if somebody mm -hmm. is, is um erratic where if somebody is is you know disrespectful you're not going to stoop to their level so you're going to maintain your decorum and have that self-leadership it's a i talked about having an element of dignity right. and having that composure so it is a part of that emotional self-regulation um, where you're able to stay objective and think about what will be the best outcome in a situation not just react emotionally. I love that, that whatever your perspective, whatever it is that you want to show up as, you don't let anything shake you. I mean, there's a very stoic feel to that, right? How do people develop that? How does a man develop frame so that he can become a high value man? Well, he's got to build a life that he's proud of, you know, and, I think sometimes it goes hand in hand, but it's very hard to just become a man that you ad admire. You know what I mean? Like working from the inside out can sometimes be difficult. I remember talking about this when I was a therapist, when people were like, who am I? How do I know who I am? Who am I supposed to be? Well, it doesn't really work that way. You have to cultivate who you want to be. And so it, it requires some of that externalization, like you were saying, integrity versus extegrity. You have to look at your external environment and how you interact with it. So when you're able to, to build a life that you feel proud of, you feel of service, you feel of value um, by the things that you're doing, you're aligning yourself with your behavior. I think that's when you start to feel that internalized identity, right? And so you know when um, you are organized, when you're focused, when you're keeping promises to yourself, when you're disciplined, when all those things line up and you get the job done and you feel then the accomplishment from that, you don't want to lose that. You, you don't want to, yeah, right. you know, like I think you, you, you determine that you're going to stick to the plan and you're going to keep that going because it feels good. I like how you talk about that, that they, it's something you have to be proud of. You have to accomplish something in life that you can be proud of because experience creates a calmness. When you've been through something before, you can handle it very, very well. I, I think back to uh, a situation where 
I was running a, a gym and the first time we had someone who had a heart attack and I was uh, there on the scene and going through that situation for the first time in my life, having to do uh, compressions, having to do CPR, having to watch the, uh, the AED go off multiple times. I didn't sleep well for about a year afterwards. I mean, it rocked me to the core life, death, all of the questions that come up with experiencing something like that. And then the constant question of, did I do enough? You know, was I fast enough? Was I, what if I did this? And I even had the uh, fire chief come to me multiple times and say, Steve, he was dead before he hit the ground based on the autopsy and how he passed away. There was nothing you could have done that saved him, but I still kept questioning myself. What could I have done better? The next time it happened, I handled it in a different way. It was still extremely emotional, and it was still something that rocked my system. But the more often those things happened, the more the experience led to a different response, a different skill set, not only physically, but emotionally. How do men build experience and experience, let's say, some risk? without destroying their life? <laughs> well, I think that you do have to explore and experiment and say yes to things, you know, just kind of get outside your comfort zone and do things that may risk embarrassment or being, you know, not like, again, not like the type of risk that would ruin your life, but perhaps speaking up, you know, to strangers in a room, saying something off the cuff, uh, right. doing public speaking, just things that, that, you don't know if you're even going to like them, but you know, you want to put yourself in new situations and try it out when you don't know what your skill sets are. Um, it's also really important to figure out what, what is needed. I think men really, really need to be needed. And mm. so that's another thing to look at is, you know, in my community, what is lacking and what, what can, what need can I fill to be of use? What a and great question. Say that again. <laughs> what's lacking in my community and what um, is needed I lost you there for just one second okay you're back so uh, hopefully we caught that on the recording but you were talking about what's lacking in my community and what's needed so uh, we'll figure that out <laughs> I what what did I miss what's lacking and what's needed yeah you want to know what what is lacking around you? Like, is there a need that you can fill some kind of service or product or whatever it is, like something that you can do that will help fill that void? How does a, how does a man become a high valued man without just leaning into what his weaknesses are? So for instance, if he has developed some sort of insecure attachment based on how he grew up, and then he says, well, I want to help other people develop secure attachment. I want to coach people. I want to do this. And then he brings all this baggage to the coaching. Um, probably not a great way to go, right? So how does a how does a man become a high-valued man without carrying his baggage along with him? Well, I mean, you got to start somewhere. So unpacking that that baggage is really just about reflecting and having an, a growth mindset. Sometimes it's doing some stuff alone. Sometimes it's talking with friends or family members. And if you do need to talk to someone, you know, a mentor or a coach or whatever, then seeking that out, being a, a, a learner, being a follower first before you can be a leader. And 
you know, a lot of people focus on some of these external superficial characteristics of just wealth or physical appearance being a part of being high value, but I, I don't even put them on my list of what I, I would say are the true qualities of a high value man. Um, because, so you don't have to have those natural, you know, birth <laughs> privileges, right? Like right, you can, right. can start from scratch and just develop yourself into a high value man by the way that you interact and how disciplined you are in your goals. Um, because that's, that's a huge part of it is just a man. It's almost like that warrior mentality, you know, where you're able to commit to something and see it through. And that's a huge part of it. And like you said, having one, you know, successful outcome or one experience under your belt is going to be the foundation for more of that. And you will start with zero. And so just keep when you're able to keep going and put in the work, have that work ethic, be ambitious, uh, keep striving, have a competitive spirit. Like I think competitiveness gets a bad rap, but it's an important part of masculinity to have that competitiveness. I mean, it's also going to be balanced with ethics, you know, integrity, right, right. honor and all those things. But it, without that competitive drive, we would not have a lot of the advances that we have today. So that spirit is, it's that fire in the belly that you need to stoke as a man and nobody else is responsible for that than you, you know, other than you. So, you know, if you want to coach and you have baggage, you need to not just learn the skills of how to coach, but you need to make sure that, that you're in a healthy position and you're not going to be influencing you know, maybe younger boys or whatever, uh, down a, a bad path or, or sort of bleed <laughs> out over them when, in those wounded ways that you may be carrying with you. So you want to be doing your due diligence to, um, not just go through the motions of performing in that, that job, but actually being the man that you need to be. I agree with you 100%. When it comes to the trappings of success, right. Uh, financial uh, the way we look, the, uh, whether it's the physique, the clothes we wear, the drive, the cars we drive, uh, that does not define a high value man. It's easier. It, statistically speaking, it's easier to become a millionaire than it is to get a six pack. There are more, I, I can't remember what the stat was, but I think you're 14 times, 13 or 14 times more likely to become a, a millionaire and not, if not a multimillionaire than you are to have a six pack. And the big difference, the reason I bring that up is because it, becoming a multimillionaire, yes, it requires work and discipline and some luck in there, uh, but to get the six pack, you've got to work uh, and, and you have to eat and you have to lift and you have to put the time in. And so um, I, not that I think that every high value man has a six pack or that every high or that every six pack uh, guy is a high valued man, but in order to get there, you have to do the things that a high value man has to do. So I couldn't agree more. How do people balance that though? Because work competitive nature, the drive to succeed, the drive to acquire, I believe it's just innate in us. I think that that is something that is part of our masculine DNA. So how do we balance that with the need to develop ourselves internally? 
I don't know if they're completely separate, right? Like they're probably two sides of the same coin, but all, a lot of this stuff is going to be impacted by the way that we're raised and what are the major influences in our life, like nature and nurture. But um, yeah. our parents have to allow young boys to be young boys and not try to turn them into little girls. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's just happening more and more these days, literally. And that's unfortunate, but um, a lot of these natural masculine behaviors are demonized and marginalized and um, eradicated in a lot of ways. So I don't know if I talked about this the first time now, but in parenting, you can parent in a masculine way and in a feminine way, and you need to do both. And so let's say that child only got harsh discipline and didn't get a lot of the comfort or the opposite, they got too much comfort and not enough discipline, Mm -hmm. then there's going to be something off with in their development as they mature into an adult. And so it does need to come hand in hand where you're able to value both sides. And, you know, as a man, you're going to be focusing on being more masculine, but you also need to recognize that that internal part, the emotional intelligence part is it's essential. You know, you, you cannot, it's like, you want to be a leader, not a tyrant. Right. Mm, And so learning, yeah, you have to know where that line is drawn um, and not go to one extreme or the other. I love that leadership versus being a tyrant. That is a very, very difficult thing for people to learn. As soon as someone gets into a leadership position, the first thing that they want to do is just start to boss people around and not lean into what truly being a leader is. Um, Taylor, what are some other qualities of a high-valued man? I literally wrote a list of like 30 things. And I'm like, I don't know that we're going to be able to get through all of these, but there are some... Let's see what we got. Yeah, I mean... The ones that come up for me right away, constantly, and every time that I, I put out some content on this, it's there are some of the the sort of simple ones that are like confidence, you know, like mm-hmm. and is a masculine high value man has a lot of confidence. He's decisive. He's ambitious. Um, gosh, he has. There's a, an element of independence, right? Like an, a high value man is not dependent on other people. But that doesn't mean that he is like we were talking about anxious, uh, avoidant attachment, not like right. in that way, not hyper independent. But if like he doesn't need a relationship, right, to be happy, he doesn't need a particular job offer, right? He has options um, and he can take care of himself. So it's more like that outcome independence, like he's just able to find his own way and he's not beholden to anyone, like he's in control of his own life. So that's what I mean when I say independence, but freedom is definitely an important uh, quality to masculine men is to have that level of autonomy in their life. So you will see that played out in their lifestyle for sure. Wouldn't you think? 100%. I think time alone is critical to that independence piece. You know, time alone and decisiveness. Um, I, I, I mean, I agree with everything you're saying there, but time alone and decisiveness are critical to becoming a high valued man. I think back to certain decisions that I made and I just decided very quickly. It came back, talked to, uh, you know, whether it was my parents at the time or uh, my wife, They're like, well, wait, 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 uh, you did what? I'm like, yeah, I just did this, and, you know, whatever it was. 
well, but what, but did you think about this? Did you think about that? Like, I don't know, maybe I just decided like, that's what I needed to do. Like, I, I think I thought about some of those things, but in a way, I don't know that I really care because I made the commitment and I've found in life that when you decide on something and you just start moving forward, you're going to learn along the way. I and mean, the reality is 100% of the time, you're just going to screw something up. Like 100% of the time, you're going to make mistakes along the way. So why not decide and move quickly and screw it up rather than sitting around and screwing it up by not doing anything, right? I mean, it just, yeah, we don't have that in our society enough today. I, I talk a little bit about the, I guess I want to take a, a, a bit of a left turn. Okay. I want to talk high value, but I want to talk a lot of stuff that I see out on social media because there are big, hairy, burly, bearded men that are jacked up on steroids, telling people what it means to be a masculine man. And then at some point comes out that that guy's on 30 different steroids and all the stuff that he's been saying. Maybe, while there might be some interesting truth to some aspects of it, like, yes, go get some sunshine and lift some heavy weights. Um there's a version of masculinity that's being put out there that is really interesting to me. I'd like to get your take on it. The liver kings of the world. Where do they fit? Uh, well, I have to admit that I'm not like probably as familiar as you are. I know, you know, offhand a bit of information, but it kind of fits into that whole bravado of alpha man thing, you know, right, that right. people are asserting, but it's not really coming from uh, an authentic place. It's more performative. Yeah, yeah. And that's where I see the disconnect because like you said before, a lot of this is about, yes, the hard work and, and, and commitment and discipline. Mm -hmm. um, but it's not just about performing to get approval. <laughs> that is a very weak actual mindset, right? Like yeah, a man who's yeah. trying seek approval from others is a sign of weakness, but you don't want to then go so far on the other side that you're, you're cocky and dismissive of people. So the high value man to me is more of that really healthy, integrated, optimized man. Um, you know, whether you want to call it like the 1%, like you don't all have to be the, the upper echelon factor, right? Like you can strive to be, but maybe not everybody will land there. And that's okay, as long as you're doing the best that you can, given everything that you have. Um, but a lot of times it's, uh, you know, there's components of masculinity that people may have, but not all of them. So I think some sometimes when I put this content out there and it's listicle, people will say, oh, you're just looking for per a perfection, uh, like a perfect man. <laughs> perfection doesn't exist. I'm like, of right. course, you're not looking right. for perfect. But there are, you know, levels to this. Right. So you, you want to get a sufficient amount of as many of these key characteristics as possible. And some people are going to be higher on some of them than others. Um, and everyone's meant to be unique. And there's going to be a person that fits with you in a relationship where you're at. And that's what you're looking for in regards to a relationship. But as an individual man, what other people think really doesn't matter. So you just need to have a high value life, right? What you think is a high value life and live according to that. And another way that I describe that 
And what's on my list is a man, a high value man is a master of his territory. Oh, and, talk more about that. <laughs> well, territory, that yeah, it's an interesting concept. Um, I'm borrowing a bit from a mutual of mine who I've known for several years, and we've had several conversations and we talk, we both talk about frame. And so that's why I'm, I'm kind of borrowing his territory um, emphasis, but in my way. So it's not necessarily the way that he, he des defines it. But when we talk about a, a, a high value man being a protector, a provider, he, what the difference between territory and provision is that a lot of people, when they talk about a provider, a provisioning man, it's usually in reference to giving to the wife, giving mm -hmm. to the household. And so when you talk about a man who's a master of his territory, it's more about the man and it's more about his scope of reference, like his point of orientation, his, you know, realm of uh, like what he reigns over. And it's not an isolation either, which is, I think, another core concept is recognizing that the territory includes a network of peers as well. So your community. So the other other men high value men and leaders in the community are part of your tribe. And yeah. you all kind of share the responsibility of like watching over your territory, your collective territory. And then obviously there's your internal territory of your household and your family and everything like that. But that kind of man who is able to protect and provide for his territory is one, he has pride for himself and he sees himself as the person in, in the position of leadership. And then he's able to, to give and be generous to those within it and work collaboratively with the other men in the community. So you see how it's usually co cooperation is a part of also competition and yeah. All of that. So it plays out really well when you think about it in an integrated way that a lot of these factors work together. They're not, they're not in silos. I love that. I've never thought about it in terms of territory before. I've thought, I've thought about it in terms of tribe, but I, that really resonates with me. The territory piece. That's fascinating. I, we've talked about characteristics of high value men. What are some of the things that high value men do? What are their habits? Well, they're definitely going to be attending to like taking care of themselves in whatever way that that comes in. Right. So they may not be naturally gifted with, you know, a handsome face or whatever, but they are going to be doing what is needed to have good grooming and be organized and um, take care of their environment. Right. They're, they're not going to be living in a messy environment and they're like, that's obviously some of the basics, right? Like what yeah, they do in their yeah. day-to-day lives. Um, but outside of that, you know, I think it's really important that, I'm, sorry, are you seeing something on the screen with the thumbs up or is it just me? I am. I don't know what that is. That is really strange. Do we need to, to change the setting and, and edit that out? <laughs> we might have to. Now, we're having a weird Zoom day. For our listeners, I, I I had to make Taylor wait for about five minutes because my Zoom shut down saying that it was updating. And uh, now we've got a weird thumb on our screen. I have no idea what that is, but uh, we'll just roll with it. All right. That's sorry about good. that. Well, assertiveness is also really important, right? I think that's another quality that 
um, masculine high value men will exhibit. And so they may be, they can be assertive with different things. It just depends on what what's happening in their life. But like you said, they're not going to sit around passively, right? right. They're going to have right. some kind of momentum, even if there's nothing, you know, right in front of them that they have to do, they're not going to sit around and wait for it to fall in their lap. They're going to go and make things happen. Yeah. So if, if they're bored, they're going to get busy doing something. They're going to do a project in the house. They're going to go outside and again, see what, what needs to, to be done. So they're definitely not going to be lazy or passive in that sense. Um, they're going to be, you know, go-getters, <laughs> basically man on the move. And uh, yeah, they're looking for a challenge, basically. Have you heard that new song uh, that uh, I'm trying to think of who the author or the uh, the person is so Darius Rucker. He was the guy on Hootie and the Blowfish, and now I guess he's a country singer. Uh, Dax is his son's name, apparently. To be a man, have you heard that song? I don't think so. So I I'm curious to get your take on it when you listen to it, but beautifully written even more beautifully performed. And there's a lot of the, uh, uh, the words in there that I, I'll be honest with you. The first time I heard it, like, I'm glad I was alone. Cause it really made me tear up when it talks about what does it mean to be a man? What does it mean to be a father? It talks about suffering though, that, that men suffer. They both suffer physically to go through and take on the roles and responsibilities of life. And then once they do that, then they suffer uh, with mental health challenges later on be with trying to carry the burden of the physical burdens or the financial burdens or whatever it is that they're dealing with. How does the high value man suffer? Well, I do think there is an element of, of service and duty, right? And so mm -hmm. it's not, it's, it's a balance because High value men are selfish in some sense, right? Like they yeah. do not cut themselves off at the knees because they know that a lot of people depend on them, right? So they have to make sure that they're in a good position. So they do need to have some level of self-interest, but they also are very generous and service, being of service is important to them. They are givers. And again, like duty is an important theme in masculinity. So at times it may seem like they do sacrifice and suffer um, because they put themselves on the line. I mean, that's seen ultimately, you know, uh, when you're in battle, right? Like they will right, throw themselves right. in front of danger in order to protect innocence or their even, you know, their best friend on the battlefield or whatever. Right. Yep. So they do put themselves in harm way and, and they will, bear the brunt of things. I, I have so many examples of clients right now. And, and we were just talking about this because thick family members, you know, um, being in charge in a business that has struggles, uh, various things that they need to, they need to bear the burden of, and they have to do it confidently and in a way that they can keep everybody else's morale and spirits high. So, you know, it's, they use me as their outlet to process their weaknesses and not show that to other people. So, I mean, not everyone has that luxury to have someone, you know, to, to confide in, but 
that might be necessary as well. Like if you are a man in a position where you're doing some suffering because it has to be done, make sure that you are attending to those needs and you're not just stuffing them and avoiding feeling those feelings or acknowledging the difficulty that you face. So you can tolerate that a lot of suffering, but there needs to be some kind of limit to that or an avenue for you to regulate those emotions and process them too. I couldn't agree more with this idea that a high valued man has a certain amount of selfishness because if, as you said, they're cutting themselves off at the knees at a certain point, their ability to serve, to give, to provide, to protect, to live into that extreme masculinity, it it just goes away because they don't have anything to give at that point. How does a man know when he's becoming too selfish versus how does he know when he's not being selfish enough? That's a really hard line to, to draw. Um, you have to be really honest with yourself um, when you are reaching your limits, when you are, are not able to perform really well. And I think a lot of men, they, they maybe go to great lengths to hide it sometimes, or they try to cover it mm. with short services. And that's when they get into trouble or they start making really bad decisions and they sacrifice integrity or ethics. And I'm, I'm extrapolating a bit to different scenarios in my own head. But if you follow my train of thought, like you don't want to put yourself in a situation where you're so like pushed up against a wall that your competence or your integrity is sacrificed. So, yeah. um, and here's a, a concrete example that gets brought up a lot and it's quite controversial when new like a husband and wife has a new child and the child is colicky at night right and the woman is trying to get the man to get up at night with the feedings or whatever and be like a stand-in mom basically uh there is a way to do that obviously where he can be helpful like he doesn't have to have a hands-off approach to helping the mom and parent the the newborn but if he has you know a business to run and he's the breadwinner and everything like you also want to prioritize what he needs so if he needs sleep then he should not be woken up <laughs> in the middle of the night to tend to those matters um so that's an example for instance he can be selfish in that way but really it's not selfish it's just what is the best solution in this circumstance in order for everyone to win. Yeah. Um, I can help, I can help you mom in different ways at different times. Uh, but you also need to value my role in this system and this family so that I can get what I need to do done. And if I'm exhausted and I have bad judgment because I'm not sleeping and I'm, and I'm irritated, irritated, you know, uh, we need to make sure that that's not happening. It's a great perspective, though. And I, I, I think uh, that would be a controversial topic today because, as you referenced earlier, we are raising a lot of young boys to be girls. Um, men should be vulnerable, sensitive, and open. True or false? <laughs> I have to redefine vulnerability because the way that people apply vulnerability, especially with men, is just wrong. Um, and I And I don't think men should be you know, bubbling up with emotions in the same way that women do. I reframe vulnerability as transparency and accessibility. 
and it has a level of risk, obviously, because if you open yourself up and share things, you're, you're going to be putting yourself at risk because people will know things about you, you know, mm-hmm. but yeah. we're going to vet the right persons and the right circumstances in which you reveal things about yourself. So if you're completely shut down and withdrawn, you're not going to connect with anybody. So vulnerability is a way of connecting with people by revealing yourself, by being transparent and by being accessible to the other person. Um, You're letting them on the inside of you rather than just, you know, being there in in the physical sense. So that emotional connection is 100% essential, Uh, but it's not what people, how people talk about vulnerability and how men should be crying and, you know, not that men can never cry, but that does not, is not required for vulnerability. Yeah. I, I think this whole vulnerability movement personally is ridiculous. Now I like you, I would love to redefine it. I, I am with you on your definition. I think that the, this idea that I somehow need to show up in the same way that my wife does, or that my daughters do, uh, it's not congruent with who I am. Now, my kids will tell you that there are moments where dad gets extremely sentimental and he becomes very uh, teary-eyed and they've probably seen me cry a few times. Um, It's not regular. They don't see that all the time. Uh, But what I will say is I believe that men need to see weakness in themselves. They need to see open vulnerabilities and say, how do I lean into that? How do I fix that problem? How do I address that? If I'm a person that, as you mentioned before, doesn't have emotional regulation, what do I need to do to address that and develop that emotional regulation? Now, opening my opening myself up and being more vulnerable so that I can sit around and cry, that's not fixing the problem. I don't care who you are. I don't care what your definition is. That doesn't fix it, especially for men. Because there is a stoic quality. There is a strength that has to be there. Why are we trying to turn, Taylor, men into women? Why is that such a big thing today? I wonder if women are just, some women lack insight and don't understand men and also are quite narcissistic. You know, they're a bit egotistical in the sense that they want like a male version of themselves. Um, And so that kind of, that's part of it. But I think the the difference though about the the solving the problem, I think that's a really relevant motivator that distinguishes men and women. And that's definitely on my list of high value traits is being a problem solver. And it's also one of those things that is a cliche criticism from women about men. So funny, right? But this is one of the, the assets that men bring to the table is that when effective, they're very effective problem solvers. And that's something that we can lack and we need as a compliment in men. But when it comes to quote unquote vulnerability, if we want to use that word, uh, seeing connection as the solution, as the goal in and of itself is sometimes the key that really helps men reframe it. Because, yeah, yeah, that's what in certain uh, situations, it's like the goal is connection. So how can you get there? You get there by just being in the moment and 
feeling whatever you feel and sharing that with someone. Great perspective. I think that reframe really makes a big difference. Um, if there's a man that is hearing this episode and he has been beat down with this idea of vulnerability, 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 and he's pulled back from some of the masculine traits, or he feels like there's some sort of incongruency in his life, what's your best advice to him? What would you tell him to do today? Well, a man who's incongruent and who's disconnected from his emotions, usually when I get to talk to them, um, they, I can think of, of men being very, uh, they're very impatient. <laughs> they're very focused on what can I do? How can I get the woman? You know, like they have the, what's my task list? Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's usually their, their approach in the work that we do. And so number one, our goal is slow down. And that can be really, really hard, but it's so effective when I can help a man slow down. And so that's that's what I see as um, like that extreme characterization is when they're in, in their masculine, sometimes they're so performative that they're just skipping over steps. They're just, you know, trying to get to to the end zone way too quickly and and not and they're neglecting the process. Right. So outcome focused, not process oriented. And when I get them to slow down, that's again, when I will introduce more of the, the self-regulation activities, whatever that is, usually it's something tactile, you know, getting busy with their hands rather than their head, trying to solve problems with their mind, but actually connecting to their body. So before you can connect to another human being in a relationship, you have to connect with yourself. And literally, that's not some woo-woo talk. It's your actual body, you know? Yeah. And so yeah. Being more tactile with your body helps you, your mind connect better. And then your thoughts and your body, your feelings and your actions can become more congruent the more you're aware of the sequence there, right? If you notice your thoughts, you realize they lead to a feeling, which you might not be conscious of, but once you're, you start to examine it, you realize there is a feeling that, that comes up right? A sentiment or a sensation even in your body, even tightness or, you know, heart, fast heartbeat. Um, and then that will result in a reaction or a behavior of like, well, you know, restlessness. <laughs> so seeing the connection there really helps you slow down the process and become more congruent between those things. I love that. So body, mind, and then emotion. We, we've also, we've almost got to go back to the beginning it, because if we're at the mind and then the emotion comes like, eh, what do we do with this? We'll go back to the beginning, change what you're doing from a tactile nature. Uh, go, go grab some kettlebells and swing them around, right? Mm -hmm. Go jump into a, uh, uh, a boxing class, go do something where there's a tactile connection to, to your body, allow yourself to uh, release that emotion and then see how the mind resets so that you can come back to a better state and a different frame. I love how you did this when you talked about this idea. To me, that means, okay, we're pumping the brakes a little bit. We're pulling up on the, uh, we're pulling up on the gas, right? We're not just going all in. And so, um, and, and part of why I love this is because this year I've gotten into F1 and absolutely love watching these race car drivers. It's just unbelievable what they do and the brakes and the gas, and they can go from, you know, over 200 miles an hour down to 70 while they're going around a curve 
and they're still doing a curve at 70 miles an hour, but they are masters of turning, masters of brake and gas. And I, I look at that in life, especially when it comes to emotional regulation, that anger is not bad. Sadness isn't bad. Happiness isn't bad. Joy, elation, all of these terms that we would use to describe emotions or even just sensations that we have in our body. None of them are bad. But if but we don't have the brakes or if we don't have the appropriate gas pedal or we don't have the steering wheel to steer away from certain things, we're not in control of our car. And so it's important to be able to develop the brake, the gas, and the steering in order to become that high-valued man. If there's a man out there that has been that type of person where he's been on a hair trigger, he uh, tends to react and respond very quickly. Uh, maybe he's lived a little bit too much in the bravado side, the showy piece. What's something that you would say to him to help him to pull back and become more emotionally regulated? That's a tough one because I find those arrogant types, they don't listen to women very well. <laughs> oh, interesting perspective. Okay. Uh, often there's there's some tension when I'm speaking with them and they they respect they respect the logic that I bring to the table, but their lack of of receptivity or humility in that sense, it's like they're too competitive. They're trying to, you know, outsmart the 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 advisor <laughs> and win the argument and not focused on women. Yeah. So I will usually have a hard time with, with those types of men, but I do try. And um, sometimes maybe effectively, I don't know, but hopefully I do plant some seeds. Um, and I would say, gosh, I think <laughs> oftentimes with those men, I, I usually cannot, you cannot try to control them. They have to decide what they want to do kind of on their own terms. So I usually give them options and they have to, to kind of play out their options and they have to justify or validate um, the most effective uh, solution, right? Like they kind of have to see it play out. So it's kind of almost like saying, well, you can do it that way. And I invite you to continue doing, trying it that way and see if it works. And if it doesn't work your way, then I have a strategy for you that may work better. And we can just experiment and see what will bring you the outcome, closer to the outcome that you're looking for. That's a great way to put it. I, I love that. I just, okay, yeah, by all means, go do it that way. How's that working for you? And then <laughs> yeah. uh, if that doesn't work, let's try something else. Let's talk strategy for a second. Um, I want to shift gears and we're going to talk about a topic that I, I don't know gets talked about enough, at least not in healthy ways. There, there, every guy out there, whether you're married, you're not married, you're in a relationship, you're out of a relationship, every guy wants more sex. What's the strategy for men to get it in a healthy way? Well, we're talking about single couples. What are we talking about here? Well, I, so let's start with couples. Okay. So, cause, cause I'm a, I, I'm a married man. Um, and so let's, let's start with a guy who like me, who's married in a long-term committed relationship. Um, what, what would you tell somebody like me? Well, it is true. And I know it can be very frustrating to understand that women work differently in their arousal cycles and their their needs for intimacy. 
So when you're a married man, when you're in a relationship, you do need to think about the relationship as its own entity that has its needs. So you have your needs, she has her needs, but the relationship has a collective set of needs that both of you will be contributing to. So you're going to have to do some things that are outside of your comfort zone or your default norm in order to make it work. So there is a level of, you know, sacrifice or, or contribution that you, you need to make that you wouldn't need to do if you were single. And that's just part of the package. So emotional intimacy is just as important as physical intimacy for women, if not more. And so you need to really invest in um, making deposits in the emotional intimacy side of things. So effective communication and connection and romance, you know, um, having the, the flirting and seduction throughout the day. Like you, you need to build it up. <laughs> you can't just always expect her to be receptive when you're in the mood. Although I do think there's a level of assumption that she's acceptable to you sexually, right? Like I do right, believe. Right. Um, and when you have vetted correctly, you will have a dynamic where you're both sexually receptive to each other, barring extreme circumstances, of course, like if you're really unwell or something and you're just going to say no and, and we'll make another date. Um, but generally speaking, you should have a connection and chemistry and just that reciprocity that there's a willingness there. And you don't, women, this is kind of an aside, but women should not feel threatened by the imposition. Let's just call it that. Like if it's like out of the blue and inconvenient, they're not in the mood. They should have um, the desire to want to just start to cooperate in the sexual activity. And it's, a, it's not a bad thing, right? It's not performative. It's not obligatory. It's just, it's part of being a married couple that you make that effort. And as you go along, you'll get more into it. It's just, it might not be like you're totally in the mood and you're making, taking the initiative or super sexy, but it's something that is, is desirable for both people. And so I, I just wanted to say that, because I think that is important for a lot of women in, to hear, but also for men to hear that it's okay <laughs> to expect that from your wife. It's just a matter of, you know, you have to talk about it and you have to uh, build up to it, but um, some men are feel a lot of shame around expecting that. Yeah, and so I, I was just going to say that uh, I I wonder if that's something where where men would feel bad because their spouse is not always in the mood for them, right? Uh, but I think that's a really common thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and and the you know if we want to call it the male pride, I would say rather than maybe male ego, but male pride mm. might hit in those moments, but women just don't work the same way. And so you have to try not to take that personally and just know that, um, I don't want to compare it to something really sort of benign, but it's almost like washing the dishes, you I, know, I, you can go there. Cause I was actually just going to bring it up. So yeah, okay. go there. Yeah. So, you know, if a woman is complaining about you're not helping out, like you don't have to want to wash the dishes. You just have to want to be helpful and you wash the dishes. Yeah. So yeah. it's not being uh, fake and, or obligatory or resentful about it, but you're willing and, and happy to do that 
even though you don't like washing the dishes in that moment, perhaps, but it's not an exact, uh, you know, parallel, but, you know, in the moment, the woman might not want to have sex because she's not in the mood, but she wants to please you and she wants to connect with you and she sees the value in it and warms up along the way. And so that's what's most important. I think that's an important point, though, because, you know, well, uh, like sexual intimacy it, for men means one thing for women, it means something different. Um, I, the the romance part of it and the desirability part of it does happen in the kitchen as much as anything else, at least from my experience. I don't always want to wash the dishes. I don't always want to take the garbage out. I don't always want to do some of those things. But I know when I do, that changes the dynamic of the relationship. I mean, I think even this morning, my my wife and I were getting ready and she held up a pan that I had cooked eggs in. And she's like, hey, when you get done with this, do you, would, do you mind just like scrubbing it out immediately afterwards? Because if it sits and you're putting the suds in there and I know you're going to come back and scrub it, but sometimes I don't want to do that. And so I just throw it in. And anyway, we have this long conversation about like how I was not doing the pan uh, or the right way. I, what she's communicating to me has nothing to do with the pan. It has to do with her level of comfort in the space and in the house. And so I said, yeah, you bet. Got it. And so when I finished up making my eggs this morning, I cleaned the pan and it is perfectly clean. And my expectation is that later on when she gets into the kitchen, she'll walk in and she won't see a dirty pan, which means that I've relieved a, a, a stressor in her brain. I've taken something out of her mind, which also then makes it a better connection for us. And so while Men think about sex in terms of, you know, the physical act. My understanding, at least what she tells me and how we've kind of worked over the last 25, almost 26 years is it's in the kitchen. It's in the garbages. It's in the raking of the leaves. It's in those little things that I do that I don't always want to do in that moment um, that, that feed the relationship. I want to come back to what you said just a second ago about feeding that different entity, because that's actually something that we've talked about. Uh, I don't know if I heard that uh, years ago or if we, it just, it's kind of this universal thing, like people kind of get it over time, but yeah, there's you, me, and we, and we has to be fed on a regular basis. What are some other ways that men can feed into the we part of it? Well, I like to talk about and bring attention to masculine forms of love. Okay. I think I think it's it's invalidated in a lot of ways because the emphasis predominantly in our society is on feminine forms of love. Mm. You know, it's the romance, it's the bring her flowers, it's the write her poetry and you know, kind of I want to say pander to her but you know that sort of wooing yeah yeah <laughs> and and that's it's much the stuff that if it were reversed it would feel really strange <laughs> yes if she wrote me a poem or if if, if she brought me flowers if it, what, what are you doing yeah it'd feel yeah. weird yeah I, th I think i saw a skit on that the other day like a tiktok and like the rules were reversed and it was about making oh, fun yeah, of those feminine uh, feminism in modern society today the woman yeah. Um, uh -huh. when one knee with the with the ring and all that sort of stuff. So yes, it would be odd in the reverse for most people, I would think. But um, those are what some expect some women expect those things from men only. And I'm not saying that men shouldn't do those, you know, the romantic gestures, but 
all the other ways that men express and communicate love to women are usually undervalued. And that could be usually it's acts, acts of service of some sort, you know, whether it's taking care of the yard or the household, um, being a protector, thinking about security, like literal physical security, like the security system, um, or it could be financial security. Uh, you know, Dennis does my crypto stuff, like little gestures, or he even just signed us up for um, self defense, like not kind of self defense, but it's some kind of home security kind of thing, lessons oh, yeah. and stuff. Yeah. So he signed us up for a series. More of important than what most people think, I'll tell you, from my yeah. own experience. Absolutely. Yeah. But you know what? A lot of, of women just overlook it. They don't, in their you know lens, they do not interpret that as love. And it goes back to, you know, the love languages, which I think are a bit, you know, it's a bit cliche, but True. in this sense, I think it's more important. Understanding that it's more of a gender thing, more of a sex difference, that men and women are different. And we need to see how each other expresses our love and appreciation for each other in different ways value that, and then also make effort to show the love in the way that we know our partner is yearning for as well. And so for women, it might be more of those romantic gestures, but it shouldn't be limited to those things. Yeah, I like that. So I talk a little bit more about what are some things that, that men need to be aware of when they want to have a great overall relationship in their, in their marriage or their long-term committed relationship um, and continue to feel great, uh, yeah. right? Continue to see this relationship grow, uh, increase the, uh, the sex, the sexuality, the, the, the satisfaction in, in the relationship. What do they need to be thinking about and doing? Well, I really think you, you you scratched the surface there when it came to the idea of relieving the woman of some of these arduous stressors in her life. Mm. And that is much more important than a lot of people realize. And this is about femininity and masculinity. So the polarity between two people, if you are covering and taking care of some of these things and recognizing the importance of a woman's needs to be relaxed and to be stress-free because men are the ones that actually function well under more stress yeah. and their hormonal nervous systems, they respond like differently under stress than, than a woman's does. And so women need a lot more leisure in order to feel relaxed and regulated and at her best. And so her femininity is going to flourish when she has the right balance of rest and leisure in her life. I'm not saying she should lay around and be lazy and passive and not do anything. Bring but... me my chocolates, man. <laughs> exactly. There's a time and a place for that. But ultimately, she's responsible for cultivating a lifestyle where she has enough downtime. But you also need to be aware of that too. And you need to be aware of her, her cycles and how the, those can fluctuate. And I think that is a huge part of it because some women are just really overworked and overwhelmed and it starts to, to kind of, you know, infiltrate the relationship and you get irritated. She gets irritated and agitated and argumentative and combative and critical. And so you take it personally, but 
a lot of it is just stress response. Yeah. And so yeah. if you can, if you can address the actual problem, then it's not you versus her, it's you guys versus the problem, which is how can we get you into a, a lower stress um, state because her cortisol is way too high, right? And if a woman's cortisol is way too high, she's not going to be able to be emotionally or physically and sexually intimate with you. And so that's what's really important to recognize that part of your role as the husband is to, to make create space for her to be feminine and a bit carefree and playful and not have to worry about some of these things. I like how you talk about that, that the cortisol has got to be low in order for that connection to be there. I had a mentor at one point that said that it's not just fight or flight or freeze. And you used another F. I'm not sure what that was. What was the, the other? Say that. Fawn. Fawn. What is that? Fawning is like people pleasing. It's, oh, it's okay. Oh, yeah. 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 Okay. So I had a mentor say, well, it's really fight, flight, freeze, or fuck. And the fuck of the, is, is essentially like, if I'm not in a fight, flight, or freeze situation, then I'm calm and relaxed and I want to procreate. That's mm -hmm. more of a natural state for people when they want to procreate. They don't have the stress. They don't have the catecholamine shooting through the roof. And uh, that's always stuck with me, not just because of how like, like it's memorable, right? But I was like, oh, yeah, okay. So if we're in a fight or flight type um, situation, then we're not going to be in this situation where we want to be calm and relaxed and have intimacy. And um, so that's a, that, that's a really important point. Um, you mentioned cycle a couple of times. This is something that every man in the world, if they're being honest, has no idea what to deal with when a woman is on... Um, the cycle and things get a little bit more aggressive. Things get a little bit more uh, combative. Things get a little bit more testy. Um, how does a man respond? Well, I, I have to preface this with, I, I do think that a lot, a lot of women use their cycle as an excuse to be okay. insufferable. Um, and I'm so glad you said that I, I'm not, I'm not going to stand on that one way or another, but uh... <laughs> I, I strongly believe that women are, are pretty ignorant of their own cycles as well. And they assume that it's normal to be dysregulated. And it's just, it's not. Yeah. Uh, so they need to take the responsibility to do what they can to regulate their cycle. Because when you're healthy, you do not get symptoms of PMS um, unless you have like some specific diagnosis of like yes. an illness or something, obviously under those circumstances. And it's unavoidable and not your fault. But generally speaking, a lot of these things are manageable or controllable by our behaviors and our lifestyles. A lot of it is. And so the woman needs to take first priority in the responsibility here of making sure she's tending to her needs. And that means diet, exercise, rest, you know, dealing with her emotions, detoxing her lifestyle of stuff that you know, it creates imbalance in her hormones. Uh, there's so many things that we have to watch out for. Not that we need to be like completely paranoid, but I think it is good to, so kind of like when you are, you're taking an allergy test, you have to detox and then reintroduce to see mm. what, what yeah. aggravates you. So similarly, sometimes it requires you to detox your environment to really see what you can tolerate in certain things. Perspective. Yeah, yeah. We don't know what our triggers are sometimes and they can be innocuous you know, it could be the water that we're drinking or the quality of air. I mean, those basic things matter. 
So that's the first and most important step is to not normalize sort of the Jekyll and Hyde phenomenon that a lot of couples experience and a lot of men complain about. But it is true that we're going to have some, <laughs> some fluctuation that is normal during our cycle because we yeah. go on 28, sometimes a little bit more, like it fluctuates a little bit. Let's just say it's a 28-day cycle. So our hormones peak on the, in, during the course of a month once, whereas for men, they peak every single day. So knowing that we don't function in the same way, it I think it does bring some perspective to the whole sexual, physical intimacy piece because you can't expect a woman to function like a man. And and even she can have sex with you every day if you want, if that's you know what you decide you want to do. But don't take it personally if she isn't responsive in the same way as you because her her system just doesn't work in the same way. So she's not going to be ready to go immediately upon looking at you sometimes, you know, where a man might be. But ultimately during that cycle, um, having different, you know, the ovulation, follicular, the luteal phase, the men menstruation and everything, like she's going to be experiencing different states. Um, and, you know, sometimes she's going to be more relaxed and sometimes she's going to be more moody. Sometimes she's going to be more driven and so you can optimize those times when she's in like her ovulation phase. Obviously, that's the best time for couples to have sex is during ovulation, even if you aren't trying to get pregnant. But those are going to be um, when you're physically in tune to each other, where, you're, you know, you're, you're going to sense the changes in her cycle and she's going to be more responsive to you on a cellular level even, right? So you wanna really, if you know her cycle, target the, that time and obviously take precautions if you want to, but utilize it, leverage it, enjoy yeah. it. That's gonna be the best time. <laughs> well, that's a time, I mean, like when you're out in nature and you see animals mating, it's during that time, yeah. right? And so there's a there's a connection there biologically that uh, there's a lot of power behind that. I, I, I'm. I'm picking up what you're putting down there. I want to touch base just on this high-low regulation. Um, I couldn't agree more with that. I, we we know uh, empirically that PMS, we know empirically that the cycle should not be something that is highly unregulated. Uh, how much do you talk to people about gut health relative to that? Um, well, it's definitely not my specialty, but I have talked a lot about just holistic, systemic, um, optimizing your health, because I've been focusing a lot on hormonal health, just from my, my self study and experiences in, in our journey. So I share what I know about, especially like with gut health for women, probiotics, fermented foods, like tending to, um, like if you are gluten intolerant or dairy intolerant, like making sure that the inflammation in your body is as low as possible because that will affect your gut, your mood and everything and your receptivity to sexual intimacy. Yeah, it's a great point. I, I Gut health is so important, especially relative to overall mental health. And I think there's so many things that we're finding over uh, the last probably 10 to 15 years relative to how effective the gut is at regulating mental health. Um, and, and super powerful. So I don't want to go down that rabbit hole too deep. Let's shift gears just a little bit. Um, steering away from uh, someone like myself who's in a long-term committed relationship and someone who is just maybe dating, somebody who wants to get into the dating game. Um, 
How do they need to think about and frame sex? Well, it's really important to know where you stand, you know, like if you are open to premarital sex, first and foremost, if you are looking or or open to casual sex, or if you want to have sex only in an exclusive relationship, I mean, those kinds of main values are important to clarify and to be honest about and direct about in the process in, in the early stages of vetting and getting to know someone. I mean, I do some dating profile reviews now. It's a little side thing that a panel of us do. And obviously in the dating apps, it says, you know, if you're looking for short-term or long-term or monogamy or whatever. So that's the first signal if you're using dating apps that you're going to be honest about what you're looking for. Um, but in, in general, obviously, like if you're just meeting someone in real life, or even if you're using like social media or online communities to connect with someone, that's not going to be the top, the first conversation that you have is kind of like, what are you looking for? But you want it to come up relatively soon. So you can clarify that, you know, you're both serious about making a connection or you're more casual about the process. And you don't have to always, it's not about interrogating someone, but you want to work it into the conversation. So, you know, what I like to, to encourage my clients to get the phone number and talk on the phone for any kind of, you know, meaningful conversations. So we don't want to rely too much on texting. I think that's a, an error that a lot of people that are single make now because it allows men to be, oh, I wanted to say coward. I'll just stick with that. Like it allows yeah, them yeah. to be coward. It's a great word. <laughs> Couldn't agree more. And so that's, it's subconscious too, because even though it's normal to do all these things via text, women will still pick up on that. Like you, you don't know, you're asking me out on a first date via text. Yeah. That doesn't seem very bold or courageous or romantic. And so it's, it's just, it doesn't have the same message when you are able to segue to a phone call, then you can start to get to know the person much better than texting back and forth. And so I just, I say, be very natural about like your conversations. It's not like an interview, like you can be doing things, go for a walk and have a conversation on the phone. You can do a video call if you like, but start to be curious and ask them about themselves and what they're looking for. Don't be afraid to address those things. And then I, I like to encourage my clients to hold off on the first date. Um, a lot of people rush to that process before they gather any information on compatibility and date a stranger. <laughs> so I think it's much better to get a little bit of early vetting done first so that when you're on that date, you can kind of enjoy it and not be so focused on extracting all this serious information from someone that can make things uncomfortable and, and just a little disconnected and impersonal. Um, but yeah, I think knowing that polarity plays a part from early on, you need to tease her, you need to be flirty, and you need to have that bold masculine persona because it's not about, you know, knocking her over the head with a club, but you want to, um, you want to, you want to take a little bit of risks and you don't want to pander to her and, and, and treat her with white gloves, kid gloves, you know what I mean? Like you do want to have a little bit of that edge in order to create that, that tension, that sexual tension with her. 
let's talk about that. I, I've heard you say before that, uh, you know, women have a more difficult time expressing their themselves sexually in a, in a long-term committed relationship. Um, and so that juxtaposition between the man having, uh, uh, some aggressiveness, some edge to them, does that help to bring that out in the relationship? Yes, absolutely. Uh, I think that some people go too far. If you're talking about some of those like guys on the internet that talk about masculinity, they go too far with it because they're really talking about the dynamic that happens with unhealthy women. And the way to win the unhealthy women over is to make them feel insecure, to neg them, you know, and and put, what do you call it? Dread, you know, put, I forget how you do it, but basically you talk about other women and make them feel like they're not important to you or, and stuff yeah. like that. And so you're catering to a woman with a, a wounded ego who's insecure and has anxious attachment. And so that will get her addicted to you. So we're, I'm not talking about that at all. When I talk about having a bit of an edge and being, you know, um, bold <laughs> with your flirtiness and stuff like that. Uh, a good example of this was it's teasing. When it's done correctly, it is just good faith teasing. Yeah. And, yeah. and obviously you need to have a little bit of a rapport with someone before you you can really feel comfortable teasing them, but it's kind of a chicken or the egg scenario. You have to throw it out at some point <laughs> when you don't know someone that well. So you test the waters. And one of my clients used this example, which I'll give you and your audience. Uh, he was texting a, a girl and she, she's clearly interested. And she was, she was sharing like her, her thoughts about him. And she said something about how he, he thought she was attractive. And he, and he goes, why do you say that? Why do you think I'm attracted to you? You know, or, or something like that in a teasing That's way. So he wasn't trying to cut her down. He was just being playful. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, she got a little reaction from her. So that coyness, it's almost like a male coyness. And I don't know if there's a word for that, but having that little bit of, of teasing and playful tension is important. And so the men that are too insecure or they're, they're just in their head and anxious about chasing a woman away, saying the wrong thing, doing the wrong thing, they will pander to her and try to you know, be perfect and please her too much. So you don't want to do that. That's not an attractive quality. It doesn't create healthy polarity in the in the connection. So making sure that you are confident and even if you say the wrong thing or you piss her off a little bit, like you can regroup from that. Like you have to know that it's okay. And even if maybe it, it doesn't work out, then it wasn't meant to be. So you're not going to be, tiptoeing around a woman's sensitivities in order to to keep her around goes back to what you said earlier with this idea that the, a high-valued man doesn't need a relationship they want a relationship uh, if it enhances their life and it makes if it makes everything better but they don't need it and so i think that there's a um as manson talks about in his book subtle art of not giving a fuck that you you just you sit back and you're like, you're, you're good. Like you're okay. If this joke lands cool, if it doesn't, all right, well, you, you can always throw another one out there. Uh, or if it doesn't, then it's probably a good thing because you're probably going to throw those jokes out there on a regular basis. So if it didn't land and the next one doesn't land, probably not a good relationship, right? 
Right. And here's the, the interesting dynamic, though, I think for maybe the man is a high value man, but he gets to a point where he's not desperate, but he's frustrated is a better word. Like he's, oh, frustrated, okay. Okay. you know, and so when a man is in that, like, I'm going to make this happen. And he, there's a, a beautiful woman who he really likes. He gets fixated on getting her. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So, yeah. So it's a, it's a goal. Yeah. Yeah. But that can be your Achilles heel because when you're too fixated on um, doing whatever you can to make it work, winning her over, uh, then yeah, you kind of lose um, traction with her. Like there is that positioning that is important. And so if you can't accept that the beautiful woman that you've had your eye on for a year or two, you finally have a chance to take out, might not work out and you can walk away from it and hold your head high, then you're never gonna, you're not gonna be in the right mindset to win her over to begin with. So you have to balance that sort of competitiveness um, with the outcome independence and just sort of being in the moment being process oriented and seeing how things turn out uh, and just trusting that you're going to show up and do your best and that's enough. And if she doesn't and you're not a good fit, it's okay. And you'll find another beautiful woman. Don't say that a man's been going through this back and forth, the coyness, the, the teasing, the, uh, whether they're in a committed relationship or, or just dating and vetting, um, it turns into something and the relationship becomes more intimate. How, what, what advice would you give to women? Because I know you, you've mentioned before that women do have that difficulty with uh, not just not being slutty, right? I don't think that's the goal to just, okay, now I'm just this crazy slut. I think that's a, uh, an, an overdone um, expression of sexuality in our day and age. I mean, there's, there's a lot of crap on the internet. There's a lot of songs that have been written by women, there's a, like just the things that some women wear. Like it's just it's it's crazy. Like it's this oversexualization that's kind of I don't know. In my mind, it's just like there's a low class to it, right? There, it's not it's not very classy. It doesn't come across well. But then there's this thing that I look at with like a beautiful woman, a woman who has taken care of herself well. She has this beautiful sensuality about her that pulls pulls you into her. Um. What, what advice would you give to women who might be struggling with leaning into that? Uh, I don't know that I would use the word appropriate, but I don't know what a more appropriate word than appropriate is the appropriate sexuality or the, or, or the great sexuality, the great sensuality that is authentic to who their feminine, most feminine self is. Mm, yeah. It's really important for women to get a handle on this, that there is a line of decency and, you can be vulgar and, and inappropriate with it and, you know, may work again, this is the opposite. Like it'll work with the unhealthy men or the desperate right. men, right. but with the high value men who are looking for a serious woman in his life, mother of his children, wife, then that's going to just rub him the wrong way. Um, you'll be considered more of a short-term pleasure seeking fling. And you know, you can be sexy without being over the top and vulgar. And yeah. a lot of that comes from 
your ability to access your femininity and to be comfortable and authentic in your own skin and vulnerable because vulnerability in women is much more straightforward. Uh, although, yeah. although vulnerability can be weaponized and it can be uh, like seen in, in toxic women, right? Like they need to be rescued. They're so vulnerable. They're broken. They're lost. And that's when they'll attract these, these wounded men as well who need to, to rescue a woman to feel like they're needed. But if a woman is capable, like she's taking care of herself and, and isn't desperate, but she's able to just be herself and be vulnerable and show, you know, that, that sort of sweet side of her, I don't want to say like a little girl, but it's important for grown women to have that accessibility to her girliness. I just really think that's about our femininity. And when we are too matronly, like we're, we're, you know, you're missing the, the seduction part when you, you go from, I don't know, like, I guess you, you don't want to be seen as slutty or whatever. And so you become too, I want to say modest, but like, like a more of a matriarch and yeah. that's yeah. Really sexy to a man. Yeah. Right. So that will come in time when you become a mother and that role is picked up and integrated into your persona, but allow yourself to access this more maiden-like side of you that's more feminine and, and charming. We, I, I've told my wife this several times. So we'll walk into a room and she'll be wearing something that is just, uh, I mean, she's got great curves. She's stunning. And uh, we go into a room and I can see all heads turn. Men, women, like, we'll look her up and down, check her out. She's got no idea that people are doing this. Like, she's so just, whether it's in the moment or in her head or into our conversation, whatever it is, to me, that's one of the most beautiful, sexy things that a woman can do. And and I'm not saying that, like, oh, it, you know, uh, it's because she's focused on me, right? It's just that here she is here's who she is. Here's what her body is. Here's how she's dressed. And it doesn't matter. It just, it's kind of this lazy affair. All right. This is who I am. And man, that is, I love that. I've told her this multiple times. I absolutely love that. Um, what, what's your take on that? Well, would you say that's like a lack of, um, like she's not conceited, she's not full of herself and that's really sexy. Like a, a beautiful woman who doesn't act like she knows she's beautiful is very attractive. Yeah. It, she's really funny. Um, I mean, she's probably, I've always told her she's kind of like a unicorn, um, just because like she's drop dead gorgeous. And, um, yet she's like the funniest kind of silly, um, like nicest person that you'll ever meet. I, I remember at one point somebody was like uh, cussing a couple of people out and then looked at Danielle and you're like, and you've never done anything wrong. Uh, and then went to the next person. And it just, she, she's, she's extremely uh, loving and kind. I mean, she, the, the kids friends call her queen Danny for a reason, because like they all look up to her as a queen, not that she acts like that, but they, revere her as a queen because of how she is and how she shows up. Um, so yeah, there's not a conceitedness in there. Um, but, but she can, you know, she can dress down and she can dress up and she could dress modest and she could dress 
what some would consider immodest. And I think it's all beautiful and all sexy uh, because of that attitude that goes with it, right? It's not the, hey, look at me. Now, if people do look, fine, but it's not, hey, look at me mentality. So I think that that's a, that, that, that's a really powerful thing. And I'll, I'll say from my perspective, that helps create this juxtaposition where I feel really comfortable in my own masculine when she is in her pure feminine. When yes. that's the case, the polarity is there and, and the, you know, you, me, we, the, the, the entity of the, we that gets filled um, probably at the highest level when that's the case. Yeah, that makes sense to me. And this goes back to some of the qualities that make for a high value man. What something we haven't mentioned is a high value man has high standards of other people as yeah. well. Right. Yeah. And so it's, it's not entitlement. It's not, he has high standards for other people or, or for his life and he doesn't live by them. He lives by them, but he also has high standards for the people that he is close to yeah. and yeah. that goes for the woman that he chooses. And so here's an example of having a woman who is complementary to your status and your, your, you know, the values that you bring to the table. And so she's going to earn your respect and give you respect as well, because you both emulate um, and kind of like amplify each other, right? Yeah, like yeah. you're whole, whole people, but together you make an even bigger, better whole. And I think that's what's really important is that a high value man chooses a woman who will elevate him just naturally. He just, she just adds to his life and does not take away from it. I want to get your perspective on this. So I, I think that women want to be around men that they feel safe around, um, but that there should always be some sort of danger. I, I, I believe men need to be dangerous. I believe that men should be skilled enough physically, mentally, uh, emotionally, financially to take care of any enemy that comes in front of them. Um, whatever that may be, you know, you talked about uh, what did, you said, Dennis is getting you into like self-defense or type classes. Uh, we had a situation and I know I've talked about it a couple of times on the podcast. So I won't go into great detail for any listeners that have heard this story before, but we had a situation where a guy broke into our house and early in the morning and um, I got him out of the house and it was, uh, you know, it, it was something where it happened better than what it could have happened. Meaning the result of it was much better. I only broke one pool cue uh, across him and stabbed him with it several times to get him out. And we didn't get into any hand-to-hand -hand combat, uh, you know, physical altercation. But the, I didn't care what it would take to get him out of my house. Like there was no thinking. The only thought was, do I get the shotgun? Do I get a pistol or do I handle this right now? I, uh, in the way, and I just decided to handle it the way that I did. But point is I've always believed that men need to be dangerous because it's better as the old saying goes to be a warrior in the garden than a gardener in the war, because you then, when you are gentle, when you are kind and you are a gentleman, it's a choice. It's not a choice to be a gentleman if you're just weak. If you don't have the ability to take down another person verbally, emotionally, physically, whatever you need to do in that defensive situation, then you're not making a choice. The choice has been made for you because you are not competent or capable. I'd love to get your thoughts yeah. on that. 
Oh, I completely agree with you. And gosh, what an intense situation. I'm glad that you were there and took care of things. Um, one of my lists that I wrote about high value men had on it, it's kind of clickbaity, but one of the items was must be able to kill with his bare hands. How about that? <laughs> I love that. Yeah. So I agree with you. And I think you, you, you explained it brilliantly, but um, most men, do you think, lack that ability? I would assume that most men these days are 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 weak and not capable of really defending their territory when push comes to shove. I think that, you know, and that that particular situation was a really interesting one for me because once it was all said and done, you know, and the cops had come and and chased after this guy and whatever, um, I had time to pause and reflect and think about, okay, where, where were the gaps and, and the opportunities? What can I get better at? And it dawned on me. I mean, if you get somebody that's like 50, 60 pounds heavier than me, if you get somebody who might be more well-trained than I am, what the hell am I going to do? And so I, that was a gap and an opportunity where I said, okay, I've got, I've got guns. I've got uh, weapons that, that I can use. I've got implements. Um, I've got a certain amount of strength, but God, you could throw 50, 60 pounds on and that's, that's a lot, right? Uh, there's no way that I'm going to spend my life trying to gain another 60 pounds of muscle mass to try to fight somebody that maybe that might somewhat happen. So what I did is I said, Hey, I've got to improve my skill set." And so I reached out to a friend of mine who, uh, fights in MMA teaches, uh, uh, and coaches people. And I had him teach me for several weeks on end and then had him come in and, and teach uh, my wife and kids how to do just basic defense, uh, push kicks, uh, you know, some simple stuff, which was really cool as a dad. Like I, I felt so proud when he, he watching my, my son and my daughter do push kicks. And he looks at me, he's like, dad, you don't even need to be involved in this because your kids have got it. Like if anybody else comes in, these two kids are going to kick their ass. <laughs> so, um, but I think that's an important aspect of masculinity is that the, uh, in business, we call it the after action review, right? Whatever happened, let's sit down, let's review what happened and let's say, what do we need to do better next time? How do you coach men to go through that reflective process? Well, what came to mind is in the training aspect, like going going to the um, effort to getting classes and getting a trainer in that respect. I think it's also applicable when it comes to relationships, right? And and at least that's how I'm how I'm interpreting it in my capacity, right? With people yeah. when I work yeah. with them, getting them relationship ready. Because I posed this question recently: Is it do you be, do you get ready for a marriage and then find the right woman or do you find the right woman and then you kind of become ready for a marriage right interesting yeah. and i think a lot of times it's the latter that happens but yeah. it doesn't always work out right like that's the situation where you're now you're in love and and you're, you're attached but you're maybe not that compatible and so you have to do a lot of damage control and work on the back or yeah, in the back end to try to make it work. But if you try to become marriage ready or relationship ready uh, before you meet the right person, you're going to have a much better outcome. And so mm. equating it to the same thing, preparing for something like a battle uh, and acquiring the skills, 
just going to MME classes is not going to prepare you for a, a home invasion, like right. in the real sense, because it just, you have to be in that situation to really test out your skills and your competence, but going to the classes and hiring someone to help you does help to prepare you for the opportunity if it happens. And so if you look at it in a relationship sense, seeing you know the person while you're single, encouraging them that you need to gain these skills now to the best of your ability. You don't have to be perfect in order to then get into a relationship or get married, but having that under your belt is gonna bring you much more confidence and it's gonna make you much more competent when you're in the situation with the right woman. That's a great perspective. And I, I know that there are listeners out there that are men who are either single um, uh, because they just have never gotten into a long-term relationship. They haven't gotten married, but there's also uh, men out there who have been through a divorce and they are looking to get back into the game. Um, I've never used a dating app. I mean, I, God, I think back to what dating was when I was younger. And I think, holy cow, I'm glad I don't, uh, I, I, <laughs> I'd fail the test probably <laughs> when it comes to, to, uh, having to connect with people and date online and do all that kind of stuff. Um, talk a little bit about the difference between a jumping on to a dating app and swiping left and swiping right versus, um, you, you've got a new thing coming or that you, I don't know if you're doing this right now, um, but uh, anyway, talk about the difference between these two, because it fascinates me because I know that there are a lot of guys out there that are on dating apps and they're very frustrated. Yeah. I'm not a big fan of dating apps. Um, some of my clients still use them, but they've acquired the skills of the vetting system. And so that's when I'm more comfortable when they have a pretty rigid, you know, like a stringent approach to vetting so that it's just like a peripheral funnel for them. It's not like something they're attached to and it's like their only form of connection yeah. to a human being. And the reason why I'll just mention the reason why I really stand against dating apps is because for the, for the most part, there are some new dating apps that are designed to be ethical, put it that way. Um, but generally speaking, the hookup apps, the, the classic dating apps were invented with the premise that everyone is going to be polyamorous. <laughs> They're going to be yeah. just talking to a bunch of people, going out with a different guy or girl every other night. And you don't have to disclose this because it's assumed. Mm. So it puts you in the wrong pool of people <laughs> that are generally going to be living that way and feeling justified in that lifestyle. So it only works when you clarify in the very beginning that that's not what you're doing and you can verify that the person is trustworthy and they're not you know, lying to you, which is hard to do. But anyway, so if you're trying to get into a, a, a long-term monogamous relationship, it's like showing up to a deer hunt with a fishing bowl. <laughs> yes, I definitely, it's not, it's not my recommendation, okay. but I do, I do advise that people use social media because it's, more, you know, it's more holistic. It's not specific for that purpose. Um, and you get a better, broader view and the algorithms are actually created to help connect people based on alignment of like similar values yeah, and like, yeah. right. Yeah. So that, that, that's why even Dennis was saying it like, wow, Instagram ads are so cool because like, now that I'm looking at all these classes, I'm getting all these ads for cool things that I want. Yeah. Yeah. 
it happens with people too. So the more you engage with people on certain pages that align with your values, the more you're going to show up for them, they're going to show up for you, and you're going to create like a new little community online. And so I think you can leverage social media uh, for, if you want to call it online dating, but I call it online vetting. And I wrote a book, an ebook on it. So I have, it's like a 60 page instructional manual on how to use social media to do that. Okay. Yes. So I do um, encourage that. And, but I actually do put people together. So what is commonly out there is more like a glorified dating service when they say matchmaking. So I tried to not use that term without explaining what I do, because that's not what I do. Because well, matchmaking to me just seems like it's a, it's a, it, you, you take the app and then it's like, okay, we've got the app, but now I'm going to insert myself in and I'm going to do what the app did, but it's, but I'm, but I'm essentially just doing the same thing the app did, right? The way that I see what sort of typical matchmaking companies do is one, they take a ridiculous amount of money from men, right? It's like at least $10,000. You're sad and we're going to make you poor. And I don't know how much the women pay, but that was my first question that I asked my client who, who accessed one. And, and I was like, what, what skin in the game do the women have? You know, like what, what really, how is this working for them? But it's like driving up to a fast food restaurant in the drive-through and the people that are at the window are like these little bubbly matchmaker girls that the company hires. And what they are is they're single and they're desperate for their own high value man. And so they become a matchmaker to get to the top of the line. Interesting. <laughs> but basically the company okay. creates some kind of system where they connect people. They have this database and the men pay the $10,000 and they vet the men to make sure they're high value men, you know, and in under their terms. And then they get these little bubbly matchmaker girls to just basically give them a bunch of face cards of women to put wow. them in touch with like, you know, a dozen women or so. And then they just see how it works out. And, and oftentimes it does not work out. Uh, and for the same reasons, because these girls are like, you know, dealing with dates from multiple high value men at the same time, like maybe they're flying them out, you know, like the men are coming to see them in a different state. And then the next week it's another guy. And then they feel like they're on the bachelorette. Wow. <laughs> so I, I, I'm not That's a big shocking fan. to me. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it does. I guess it doesn't surprise me, but it's still just hearing it. I'm thinking what a horrible situation. Yeah, well, that's what it, when, when I hear that these matchmakers end up going on dates with their clients, I'm just like, Ooh, this just doesn't seem right to me. That's not, just seems unethical. But anyway, so I don't do that. That is not what I do. What I do is I, I get to know the people in my community, whether I work directly with someone one-to-one in group coaching, or I do a one-off call, or they're just in my online communities. And over the years, usually it's years that I've had access to someone and, and had conversations with them. Um, that's when I would potentially match them with somebody else I have also gotten to know. So it doesn't happen right away. And I'm not going to give you a whole list of names, but I will have vetted the people that I talk with. And when I feel like two of them are compatible, I'll put them in touch with each other. So this is something I'm now offering more publicly, which I used to do more like behind the doors 
the closed doors of, of my clients. Um, now I'm opening up to the public so I can consult with someone, get to know them, have them fill out my um, paperwork so that I can vet them first and then keep them in mind for, for this potential matching. I think what, I, what I've liked about watching your content uh, over the time that I, uh, from whenever I, I can't remember when I started following you, I, and I actually don't even remember if I found you on uh, Twitter or Instagram, but something popped up, you know, the, the great algorithm uh, because of uh, things that I'm interested in some of your content popped up and I started following me and there was a lot of this, like I said, at the very beginning of the episode, just real talk that I really resonated with, but I've also really valued Taylor, how you with your clients and with your community, you have truly created a community of people that uh, appear at least from the outside to be like-minded and these people that you're working with and that you're helping through this vetting process they seem to be these people that are very high value, but also a, a strong community. Am I, am I getting that correctly? Yes. I'm so fascinated. I'm glad that that comes across because that's yeah, my, it definitely does. Oh, wonderful. Yeah. I, I'm not sure how it happened. I think it's just consistency and congruency, you know, over time, but there is definitely um, a core group of people that is constantly growing bit by bit. So I focus on quality over quantity. Mm -hmm. And I really do give a lot to the people that are in the inner circles of the community. So like Instagram subscriptions is one. There's like 50 odd people in there. And so we get to know each other even deeper in there. I call it micro group coaching. But there's also the same people that are following me on Telegram and Instagram and, and Twitter and stuff like that. So it is very supportive. And it's it's nice to have that kind of alignment in a community where you feel people are different. You know, they have different demographic variables. Um, a lot of Christians that I work with, even though I'm not a, a born again Christian, I call myself a secular Christian. That was a mm. term that I coined. But there's a lot of faith base in in what I talk about. Like I talk about good and evil. I talk about, you know, um, morality and everything. So a lot of Christians do end up aligned with my content. Um, but I also have, you know, different people of all walks of life, and some of these core values is 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 how they they have they're drawn to the to the content, and then they do end up. Yeah, joining the communities and making friends. I mean, it's, vetting is not just about romantic connections, and that's it. Right. It's about right. vetting for a network of people, a tribe. It's vetting for male friends and and just yeah, whatever platonic or professional. It could be work related too. Um, networks that can emerge from that because it's it's relevant across the board. Well, I think you're doing great work, and uh, I really appreciate you coming on to the podcast today and just talking through some of the work that you're doing and uh, your perspective, both on the characteristics, the qualities, uh, and the habits that high-value men have, and you know what what are they doing. Um, if people want to learn more about what you're doing and want to learn more about the communities that you're building and how you're helping people to become better at this vetting system, how do they get in touch with you? Well, I mean, it's really easy to find some of my links on my profile. So if they're on Instagram or Twitter or even YouTube, they can find my links um, to my books or to my other communities. But one of the easiest ways to just 
get to know me a little bit better and vice versa to vet each other is to just get my free vetting call. I find that that's just easier to connect with someone when you get them on the phone and you see if you jive and oftentimes that leads to something fruitful on some level because there's so many different ways that we can continue to have contact with each other, whether it's this matchmaking, uh, if they're single and they're looking for vetting uh, someone in, in the community, or if it's one-to-one, -one, or if they just want to be part of that sort of inner circle and access more of my content, I'm definitely willing to keep the conversation going. I love that. I, I don't know who the Stoic philosopher was, but this idea has been stuck in my head for uh, ever since I read it for the first time, that our happiness in life is directly related to our skill and ability. If I want a great relationship, I have to develop skills that help me to have that great relationship, and then I can have happiness from that. If I want a great body, the same thing. I've got to develop skill and ability in those areas any area where I can get happiness and enjoyment from, if I develop skills and ability, then I become happier. And I think that what you do is a great way to help men in particular to become better at uh, every aspect of life and help them to vet better. But it's, it's a growth process. It's an evolutionary process. If there's one bit of advice, let's call it the Twitter effect. Right. If they were, if we were to distill it down into one tweet that you would want to give our listeners today, what would that final? Uh, do we still call them tweets? I guess we do. So even though it's called X, I don't even yeah. know. Yeah. What's the tweet? Well, I did a good one today that I think is relevant, and it was: uh, if you're not capable of being clear and assertive about your boundaries. Um, you will be exploited by unhealthy women, basically. You're gonna attract healthy women when you're able to be clear and assertive with your boundaries, and you're going to be exploited by unhealthy women if you don't. So it's really that. about that self-awareness and confidence that you need in order to attract the right people. Beautiful, beautiful perspective. Thank you so much. Well, Dr. Taylor Burroughs, uh, once again, thank you so much for coming on. We're going to put all of the links uh, that you uh, talked about to your uh, uh, social media and all of your uh, references into the show notes. Uh, but folks, hey, thank you so much for listening to this particular episode with Dr. Taylor Burroughs. Uh, we'll put those links in the show notes for you. But remember, guys, evolution is not something that just happens. It does take time. It takes consistency. But first, you have to disrupt. And now, it's time for you to get out there and evolve. Thanks for joining me today for this episode of The Evolved Man. If you're learning from and gaining value from this podcast, please subscribe to The Evolved Man newsletter, where I can support you even more in your personal evolution. I want to help you reverse engineer your success. The Evolved Man newsletter is like getting a free coaching session to keep you moving forward on your path of personal success. Go to the evolvedmanpodcast.com to sign up today. If you found value in this episode, you can give us up to a five-star rating on Apple and Spotify and share it with your network. That's the best way to support the podcast so we can continue to get great guests and provide you with the best wisdom for your daily life. Until next time, keep evolving.